This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Recently, news was made by paramilitary groups that planned to kidnap the governor of Michigan, hold trials, and execute people as part of their plan, and were even going to murder police officers. There have always been so-called militias who've had such ideas or those of lesser consequence, but we've never seen it so public or as capable through social media at organizing as we see today. Mary McCord is with us. She is legal director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law. She was also acting U.S. Assistant Attorney General for National Security from 2016 to 2017. Mary, thank you for joining us. How are you? Nice to be here. Thank you. Let's start with defining our terms. When we say militia, depending on who you are, it either means a bunch of guys who get together and call themselves a militia or something more legally understood as a regulated by government militia. So when we're talking about militias, what are we even talking about here? Well, first of all, there is no legal militia except for a state militia. So think the National Guard or in some states, there are other state defense forces because only the state has the authority to call forth the able-bodied residents of the state in defense of the state as a militia. Any other group that organizes and either calls themselves a militia or calls themselves a civil guard, as we sometimes see, and either attempts to oppose the government while organized and armed or attempts to augment uh, the government by engaging in policing activities or uh, property protection activities in public, that, that is unlawful under the law of all 50 states. I think there's been some uh, confusion about this since the Supreme Court decision of District of Columbia versus Heller. So how confusing has that been in the country? What the Supreme Court said in District of Columbia versus Heller was for the first time, actually, was that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for one's own individual self-defense. And in doing so, it pointedly contrasted that with a with a holding it had first issued back in 1886 when it upheld a statute in Illinois that prohibits private paramilitary organizations. That statute exists on the books of 29 states, even to this day. And the Supreme Court said back then and reiterated in 2008 that that it was really without question that states must be able to prevent paramilitary organizations in order to protect peace and good order. So 
I think the confusion comes from the fact that people aren't really well-versed in 1886 law. They're oftentimes not well-versed in their own state constitutions and oftentimes unaware of the statutes that most states have on their books that prohibit this type of private paramilitary activity. Um, the other point I would make is well-regulated in the Second Amendment means regulated by the state. It does not mean regulated by you know, whoever a private group decides to make as its leader. And that's been very clear throughout our history, the text of the U.S. and state constitutions, and as we mentioned, Supreme Court precedent. One of the things that's new here is social media has obviously made it far easier for these groups to organize. But if they are, in fact, illegal, does a social media platform, whether it be Facebook or anything else, have any legal responsibility for knowing knowingly letting people do illegal activity on the platform? So there is a statute uh, under the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, that in general provides a lot of um, protection and immunity for platforms for the content of what is on their platform, so long as they have no actual role in producing that content. Now, that said, there is an exception for criminal activity. They're not immune from criminal liability. And they also, in most cases, have policies, at least the major platforms, certainly not some of the smaller or um, more fringe type platforms, but many of the big ones like Facebook and Twitter and Google do have policies by which if this type of thing is reported to them, they will take it down. And of course, recently, Facebook has announced that it would take down the pages of uh, groups that purport to be militia organizations. So how much easier has social media made it for these groups to organize, not just as, you know, local groups meeting clandestinely in a field or at somebody's house, but to organize across cities, across states and make themselves more more powerful and possibly more dangerous? It's It's been a huge contributor and particularly, and I think you just pegged it with your question there, particularly when it comes to sort of the travel across state lines. I mean, we've had unlawful militias for decades, but um, oftentimes they would you know, mobilize locally, right? Like maybe in a county or a couple of counties. Now we're seeing uh, unlawful militias like travel great distances in some cases. And of course, in the case of the Michigan uh, arrests last week, some of those people had traveled um, several, quite quite a distance. Back even in 2017 in Charlottesville during the Unite the Right rally, there were militias, private unlawful militias that had traveled from as far away as Washington State to Virginia to participate in that rally. So this type of state uh, national mobilization really is made so much easier by social media. And Facebook has typically been the media of choice, I think, because it has such a low barrier to entry, it's so easy for people to use and they know how to use it. And so as Facebook takes those pages down, you know, they will sometimes go to other media, but it's still less um, less helpful to them in terms of recruitment, less helpful for them in terms of making it easy for people to get their message and to and to mobilize. In the couple of minutes we have left, let's make some things clear. If armed groups show up around polling places, have some have threatened to do, that is illegal pretty much everywhere or just plain everywhere. Yes. I mean, I, you know, just they, they it sort of depends on what they're doing. But when you're talking about a polling place, even if they're not purport, clearly if they're purporting to patrol the line or being protecting against against voter fraud, that's unlawful. They have no authority to do that. Even if they're just standing there with long arms, I, I think that in many states, because every state has some type of voter intimidation law, 
courts have been pretty clear, simply opening, openly displaying a weapon is not really First Amendment protected expression. Because what does it express? It expresses intimidation. I'm standing here with an assault rifle, which I could use against you if I choose to. So if we're talking about proximity to voters at a polling place, I think that that would be intimidation in, in most circumstances, in which case election officials, law enforcement would have the ability to ask those members to take, you know, move back or take their firearms uh, and put them away or in some cases make arrests. We aren't just talking about the usual militias also who generally support a certain kind of politics. The Boogaloo Boys and the base are something different. Can you tell us about them? Yes, these are really accelerationist groups that are, um, you know, the closest thing to terrorist groups that we that we really have, I think, here in the U.S., because these are groups that openly advocate for civil war in the U.S., armed conflict, armed civil war. Um, and the civil war they're talking about is a, you know, a war in order to intimidate or coerce and change the policy of government through intimidation or coercion, which is really what our our U.S. definition of terrorism is. Now, we don't designate domestic groups as terrorist groups in the U.S. the way we designate foreign groups as terrorist groups. And that's really because of the First Amendment, because even though the Boogaloo Boys and the, the base advocate violence, they also advocate ideologies that, even though abhorrent to most of us, they are protected by the First Amendment to advocate. So there would be different difficulty in parsing apart the organization, its its um, unlawful criminal, you know, violent activities from its speech in terms of making a designation. And the reason I bring that up is because there's often confusion about this. You know, President Trump, right after George Floyd was killed, uh, made a statement that we were going to designate Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. And these designations, if, if you could do that, become important because it triggers the material support criminal statute in the U.S. code, which means it's e- illegal under in violation of U.S. law to provide any material support or resources to a designated terrorist organization. That could include money, that could include one's own self as a member, uh, of, you know, to fight or to provide other services. It, could, it would also include providing um, social media services, right? So it's a powerful criminal tool, but we don't designate domestic terrorist organizations. And President Trump was wrong to suggest that Antifa could be designated because there's no legal regime, legal authority to do so in the U.S. And any legal authority would probably be met almost immediately with a a First Amendment challenge. Now, having said that, those organizations, they do advocate crimes that qualify as terrorist crimes and certainly could be charged in some cases with terrorist offenses, although we have some gaps in our statute when it comes to use of firearms to intimidate or coerce, and those gaps should be filled. But these are groups that are incredibly dangerous. These are groups that have the type of ideology like you saw in the planning in Michigan. And uh, those are groups that I certainly do hope that our our federal law enforcement are uh, investigating right now. Mary McCord is legal director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law, also acting U.S. Assistant Attorney General for National Security from 2016 to 2017. Mary, thank you so much for for giving us the time. Thank you so much for covering this important topic. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've covered on past programs how the COVID crisis has affected the Latino and black communities, mainly in terms of health. The Asian community is a slightly different story because the virus was first identified in China. Many Americans are blaming Asians of all backgrounds here in the States as if they were somehow responsible. 
CBS N anchor Elaine Quijano has this story produced for the CBS News Race and Culture Unit. So where are we now, Patrick? What We're on Mott Street right now. This is the main street of Chinatown. It's Friday night in Chinatown in New York City. Yeah, there are a lot of empty tables, yeah. empty chairs. Yeah. What do you think when you see that? It hurts. Patrick Mock manages the bakery at 46 Mott in the heart of this neighborhood. He's seen countless storefronts shutter. What everyone was feeling in March, Chinatown was feeling it in January already. When you f was first hearing about the pandemic overseas and because of xenophobia and racism, it hurt us our busiest time of year, which is Lunar New Year's. From February to April, an estimated 233,000 Asian American businesses closed across the country. And over the past seven months, the Asian unemployment rate has tripled. We've been taking a hit since January, then COVID happened, now we're all hurting. Mock pleaded with New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio in August. This video of the mayor turning away went viral. De Blasio later said he was grateful for Mock's ideas and advocacy. I was pissed off. One minute you're thanking me for what I'm doing for a community. The next minute you, you, turned, your, you turned away when I wasn't done with what I have to say. COVID-19 has touched all Americans, even President Donald Trump. President Trump is at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center tonight. But people of color have been hit hardest by the pandemic. One recent analysis found Asian patients with COVID-19 were 57% more likely to be hospitalized than white patients and 49% more likely to die. Yesterday, my daughter celebrated her birthday. And of course, you know, she wished her dad was here. Nina Batayola and her husband, Don Ryan, found their life's calling as occupational therapists. But in late March, Don Ryan was hospitalized with COVID-19. He started to feel sick after working with a patient and colleagues who later tested positive. Don Ryan died on April 4th. He was 40 years old. Every day is a reminder. So I felt like a change would be good for us. Do you have anything here? Oh. Last month, Batayola and her two children moved from New Jersey to California to be closer to family. What would you say about the, the toll that this has been taking? I know some of the people still don't believe that it, this is true unless it's happened to them and unless it's happened to somebody that they know, but this is real. The Batayola family's struggles are part of a new chapter of hardship for Asian Americans, says Star Trek actor George Takei. We're going through a very traumatic time for Asian Americans. It's part of a history in this country that includes the internment of Japanese Americans like Takei and his family during World War II. What do you think this current COVID-19 pandemic has revealed about how Asian Americans are viewed today? I don't think it's anything new. Each chapter is unique and different, the forces have played on us, but it all stems from hatred of people who look different. The data sources that we used really don't adequately represent the Asian American population because it's such a diverse population. Cardiologist Dr. Nilay Shah studies health disparities at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. 
the South Asian and the Filipino American population are known to have higher rates, for example, of diabetes. And diabetes is known to be a predisposing factor to worse outcomes. The Asian American population is on track to be the largest minority population in the United States in the coming decades. I think that we need to make sure that we're representing our data equally to the representation of diversity of the American population. Back in New York City's Chinatown, Patrick Mock hits the streets each week, handing out food and masks to his neighbors. I know, I promised you. Yeah. But I see the same people over and over again, buying the same things like my cup noodles to my sticky rice. Just one? Yeah, just one. I was thinking, oh, they might be homeless. And that's why I really wanted to give back to my community, because When you're at your lowest point and you find people that's willing to help you, you appreciate that. The story has political importance. There are 11 million Asian voters expected this year. And as CBS News correspondent Michael George reports, they may be a big factor in swing states like Nevada and Arizona. I'm ready to vote. I want everyone's voice to be heard. They're ready to vote. Across America. We are registering voters, Nevadans. Early voting starts on October 17th. So that's the Tagalog. Asian Americans like 25 year old Jaywon Jung want their voices heard too. Yeah, one more for you. Jung, an immigrant from South Korea, will cast her first ballot for president. And because she just became a citizen, her vote is a monumental moment. She's doing her part with one APIA Nevada making videos telling others why it's important to vote in the battleground state. Are you scared for the future of the country? I think I am scared for the future of the country. I think one of the biggest issues right now is that people are so divided. One thing I'm going to look for in a candidate is to unite all of the groups together. Candidates who have largely ignored these voters in the past now recognize their power. 2020 is going to be a watershed year when it comes to Asian American community members finding their vote and finding their voice. That's right. yeah. Stephen Choi is an advocate for the New York Immigration Coalition. How powerful is the Asian American vote? The Asian American vote is incredibly powerful. Across the country, it is going to be the swing vote, the margin of victory in so many critical elections, including the presidential election. You're saying the Asian American vote could actually determine the outcome of this election? Absolutely. Their power comes from their numbers. More than 22 million strong, Asian Americans are the fastest growing racial group in the country. More than half are eligible to vote, a record number. More Asian Americans identify as Democrat than Republican. In a recent survey, more than half say they support former Vice President Joe Biden. But President Trump has a sizable base among Vietnamese American voters. Good morning, are you registered to vote? Which candidate gets their vote may come down to who best addresses their main concerns, including the pandemic, unemployment, and racial justice. If we remain visible and voiceless, then we will be victimized. Activist and Hollywood icon George Takei. Sometimes elections are won by a small margin, a thin margin, and we can make that difference. We should be mindful that we count. With just weeks to go before Election Day, community organizers are handing out information printed in several languages with one message, vote. 
The Biden campaign is aggressively courting Asian American support in Nevada. Nevada actually is the only battleground or swing state with a double-digit AAPI population at roughly 11 percent. Christian Botto works for the state Democratic Party. We know what this community means to the outcome of this election, to the state, and we're not taking it for granted. I accept your nomination for vice president of the United States of America. Biden sent a strong signal that inclusion matters when he chose Kamala Harris, the first vice presidential nominee of black and Asian heritage. Her mother was born in India. She raised us to be proud, strong black women. And she raised us to know and be proud of our Indian heritage. President Trump is also working hard in Nevada, a state he narrowly lost four years ago. He hopes to turn that around with his record on the economy, while facing criticism that his comments on the coronavirus promote hate against Asian Americans. And before the China virus came in, produced the best unemployment numbers for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans ever recorded. Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes is co-chair of Asian Pacific Americans for Trump. He has done an amazing job creating an environment of success, whether it's financial and economic success, or standing up for families or freedom here and abroad. President Trump is trying to build on the goodwill he's established with Indian Americans. He's attended rallies with India's prime minister in Houston and in a jam-packed cricket stadium in India. Mr. Donald Trump. I want to make sure that a candidate earns my vote. Rani Mazumdar immigrated from India when he was 12 years old. He embraced the American dream and now owns four Indian restaurants in New York City. He says neither party has shown him it can repair the damage COVID-19 has done to small businesses. No, no, no. You're not going to win me over just because you said one thing, just because you got in a candidate that actually matches my skin color. That's not how it works. Show me your policies. Show me how efficient you are with those policies and actually executing it. Then we will talk. This election, an unprecedented chance for Asian Americans to make their voices heard. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This past week saw the confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. 
The results were a foregone conclusion, with a vote to make her a Supreme Court justice expected to be roughly along party lines. No Republicans probably defecting, maybe a Democrat or two voting for her in the Senate. What is an originalist anyway? And here to help us with this is attorney Manny Medrano, also an Emmy-winning correspondent who was a longtime network correspondent who covered the high court, and before that, a federal prosecutor who took 60 cases to verdict before a jury and never lost. Manny, good to talk to you again. How are you? Hello, Gil. Thank you for letting me join you. There was a lot of evasiveness from Barrett at the hearings. That's not even a criticism uh, in a way. Democrats were frustrated by it, but Republicans were cheering it, pointing out that other nominees have done the same thing. But she seemed to take it to new heights. She was open to the arguments that the president could postpone an election, but Article 2, Section 1 makes clear only Congress can do that. The 20th Amendment makes clear the president's term ends January 20th. Nobody can change that, and on and on. Did this go even beyond what Republicans call the Ginsburg standard? I would definitely think so, because uh, if you can say one thing about Amy Coney Barrett Gill, uh, she was unflappable and steady as a witness. There's just no question about that. And I think uh, uh, more liberal folks in our country are terrified of her because at 48 years old, if confirmed, she would be the youngest justice sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court which would mean that she would be around for decades. And of course, there's concern of her uh, uh, very conservative views, but there's no question she was unflappable. Many people might have noticed her use of a blank notepad, uh, and Republicans hit hard on that to indicate that she was unbelievably prepared, qualified, a current sitting federal judge, a Notre Dame scholar in constitutional law and civil procedure. So I think it's what's beyond question is that she's eminently qualified. The issue, though, Gil, is where her politics lie. And as you said right now, she was unflappable and assiduously avoided answering key questions on very hot-button issues. This goes back to Robert Bork, of course, really the father of the originalism, too, favored by Justice Scalia, who Judge Barrett said would be her model. When Bork was up for the court, he very forthrightly told the Senate he wanted to roll back civil rights decisions of the Warren and Burger courts, Roe v. Wade, the right of privacy established in Griswold, and that did him in. And though the Senate at that time may have rejected Bork both for his views and his honesty, did we lose something in this new standard of, I can't answer that because it may come up in a case? Well, I think that's exactly the case because, uh, as I mentioned already, she uh, was very careful to avoid answering the obvious, obvious tough questions asked by the uh, Senate uh, Democrats. That included uh, our federal programs uh, like Medicare and and relating to Social Security, unconstitutional. She had no opinion. She said she would refuse to engage in or to answer hypotheticals. Uh, she was uh, quoted from a 2017 article that she wrote that was extremely critical of the Affordable Care Act. Her response, well, you know, it was the work of an academic, a law professor, not a judge. So it's really not relevant. It definitely left Gilda Democrats exasperated. I got a kick out of one comment by Senator Durbin, a Democrat, where at one point he said, you know, I'm afraid even to ask her about the presence of gravity because she's going to deflect and not answer the question. But your point is well taken. The Ginsburg rule was taken, I think, to new heights by virtue of these uh, hearings with regard to Ms. Barrett. She says that she's an originalist in the style of Scalia, and really a lot of this goes back to Robert Bork's views. 
And though he took stands that he did, including allowing states to bring back the poll tax because he said it wasn't forbidden by the Constitution, along those same originalist lines, I knew Bork, and he told me he would not have ruled the Second Amendment supports everyone owning a gun, that even though he personally favored the idea, the Second Amendment plainly was for a government militia, and that if everybody is allowed to be owning a gun, Congress would have to specifically pass that. His originalism and what is now said to be originalists seem to have become less a legal line in the sand than political. Oh my gosh, very much so. And I think that one thing that is beyond question is uh, Miss Barrett's uh, adherence to the views of a textualist and originalist, just like her mentor, Judge Scalia, for whom she clerked uh, for two years as a uh, Supreme Court justice clerk. So, you know, there's often raging battles about what it means to be a textualist and originalist. And I think it's pretty simple, to be honest, for your listeners. The bottom line is the view of a textualist is that, you know, the meaning of the Constitution is fixed at the time of its ratification, dating back to, well, over two centuries. And it's the historical meaning of the text that should govern today. Of course, critics of that say that the U.S. Constitution, the words, the text are fluid and need to go through change and transition because American society does. Well, an originalist does not abide by that. Attorney Manny Medrano is these days working on cases of white-collar crime in the Los Angeles area, longtime Emmy-winning correspondent who was a longtime network correspondent who covered the high court. Manny, it's always a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you so much for being with us. It is always a pleasure. Have a terrific day. You're listening to America, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the ways America is changed forever is by charges of foreign interference in our elections. Now, there's nothing new in the idea of attempting to do this. In 1940, Nazi Germany, seeking to get rid of FDR, who they feared would enter World War II, bribed a U.S. newspaper to publish a leaked Polish diplomatic document claiming Roosevelt was a warmonger. In that same election, MI6, the British Foreign Intelligence Service, flooded American papers with phony stories hoping to defeat politicians, including Wendell Wilkie, who refused to support the Allied cause. And, of course, the United States has been accused of interference over the years in elections in Chile, Italy, Japan, Israel, and Bolivia, to name just a few instances. What is new is that the Internet has made such interference easier to do, easier to cover up, and be far more influential than it's ever been before. It's also made interference in the actual voting process possible. For a new podcast called Unconventional Threat, interviews have been done across the political spectrum about this. Malcolm Nance is an author who, as a cryptologist, served in the Navy for over 20 years in a number of counterterrorism, combat, and counterintelligence operations. He was asked what Russia could do. Oh, they could create chaos, real chaos, because 2016 was an information warfare attack. The Russians and these you know, advanced persistent threats, hack the mindset of the American voter. What can they do now? What they didn't do, as far as we can tell in 2016, they could directly attack the American voting system, which is, um, I actually was criticized publicly by the Secretary of State of Florida in 2016, when I said that the Russians had entered the Florida voting systems. And it turns out, we found out this year, they directly hacked two counties. And they, they can't attribute whether they changed anything, but they could do that this year. They could do it for one of two purposes. One, total mayhem in order to stoke an American civil war, 
which is very viable. Or number two, they could do it in order to uh, subtly to just increase Donald Trump's chances of being reelected. Michael Chertoff was the Secretary for Homeland Security under President George W. Bush and author of the Patriot Act. I, I think the FBI and, and the intelligence community has indicated that, that they've seen foreign efforts to interfere. Now, when I say interfere, I don't necessarily mean like trying to change votes, like physically change them or change them online, uh, but certainly disinformation. I think there have been efforts to penetrate campaigns and hack into them so that maybe they can rerun what they did in 2016, which is to put out selective emails in order to embarrass one side or another. Um, I think it's, the intelligence community has pretty clearly indicated that like the Russians do want to see uh, Donald Trump reelected. So I would expect to see uh, disinformation continue. One of the things that's interesting, though, is in 2016, when the Russians generated their own disinformation, it actually was not that effective. There weren't that many people who picked up on it and, you know, either retweeted it or liked it. But when the Russians amplified um, kind of mis misstatements or falsity that was generated by Americans, that actually did get traction. There are other dangers to foreign interference. Richard Clark is the former National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism for the United States between 1998 and 2003 and served in intelligence positions for Presidents George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. He worries about a level of interference that goes beyond flooding Facebook and Instagram with stories. The, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Dan Coats, at the time, last year, testified before Congress that the Russians are in the control system for our power grid. Not that they were, but they are. He painted a picture based on the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies' report uh, that the Russians have infiltrated, and the Chinese as well, have infiltrated controls for things like the power grid uh, and the natural gas pipeline system. Now, if you think about the pipelines, if we've converted so much from coal to natural gas for power generation that if you don't have uh, natural gas getting to the through the pipelines to the power plants, they can't generate electricity. So there are two vulnerable systems. And, you know, people used to say I was crazy when I said you could bring down the, the an electric uh, grid through hacking. And then the Russians did in Ukraine. And then they did it again in Ukraine. Uh, and now I, the federal government admits publicly that it could happen. So, yes... Uh, a foreign country can do regional, at least, power blackouts at a time of its choosing. And if they chose to do that on Election Day, it would certainly cause a lot of chaos and distrust of the system, which is their goal. Priscilla Moriucci is a cyber warfare expert with a special expertise in Asian Pacific countries. North Korea has a set of capabilities, tools, um, and techniques that could be deployed against voting infrastructure. Because in many cases, right, voting systems or the voting machines are not running sort of unique proprietary software, but different versions of common operating systems run by Microsoft or run on Linux or something. You know, these, these sort of operating system frameworks upon which vulnerabilities and exploits already exist. So, Yes, I, I agree. I think North Korea has the capability. They've demonstrated and they do have what we would call uh, wiper malware, right? Wipers essentially overwrite what's called the master boot record, which disables the computer from starting up, right, or booting in the first place. I think the key there is whether 
that is worth the worth the risk, right, of potential retaliation from the U.S. That's an open question. All of this talk about foreign interference and the president's attacks on mail-in voting and unproven claims of voting by people not legally allowed to vote has created doubt on both sides of the political fence about whatever outcome there might be, whether it be for Trump or Biden. We will probably not know the results of many races, including the presidency, on election night. Former United States Senator and Congressman Tim Wirth says everyone's just going to have to be okay with that. Citizens at all levels have to be very patient and wait for the full count to come in. Uh, We know that the count will be different between uh, the uh, votes that are uh, cast on election day and those that are sent in by mail. It's going to take a long time for those uh, votes to be counted. Uh, That delay is room for a lot of mischief uh, during that two or three week period of time after November 3rd. Citizens have to be patient. That's part of the citizens firewall uh, against mischief. Uh, Editors and and, uh, uh, producers of television programs have to be patient to understand that it's going to be complex after the 3rd of November not to try to uh, declare a victor on election night. The problems if Americans on both sides lose faith in the election system are harrowing. We've not even gotten into subjects covered in the unconventional threat podcast for which these interviews were done, such as the unrestricted use of presidential emergency powers. What happens if a president, now or in the future, despite the Constitution, just refuses to let go of power? Or what happens if the military is called in? Again, these are questions not just about this election, but every future election, especially if Americans think the election's not fair. This worries retired U.S. Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was chief of staff to former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Once power is obtained in that sort of way, and once it proves itself, as Churchill said, the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship. The problem is the transition. (laughs) What we have licked in 200-some-odd years is we've made transition after transition after transition without major chaos. We've had some tough ones like the one with Tilden and, and Rutherford B. Hayes in 78, but we have made the transition. We're talking about now coming to a point where we may be on the verge of destroying that last rubric, that last piece of our democracy that still stands and allows for these peaceful transitions every four years or every eight years, whatever it may be. By the way, Unconventional Threat is found at most podcast sites and at unconventionalthreat.com. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The latest on COVID-19. CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell talked to the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, 37 states, that is nearly three quarters of the country, is seeing an increase in daily cases. Why is the United States headed in the wrong direction? Well, I mean, what's happening is that we were in a difficult place to begin with, Nora. Uh, as you know, the background baseline number of cases that we were having each day was between 45 and 50,000 a day. That's an unacceptably high level. And then what's happening in some of the Midwest state and the Northwest, and even now in the upper Northeast corridor, as the weather gets cooler in the fall, you're seeing people doing things more indoors than outdoors, which is always a bad situation to be in when you're dealing with a respiratory infection. So what we're seeing, unfortunately, is upticks in case positivities, test positivities. That's going to translate, as it already is, into additional hospitalizations, which ultimately are going to translate into additional deaths. So we have a high background to begin with. And now we're starting to see, as you said correctly, an uptick in cases, you know, in 37 states. I mean, that is a substantial proportion of the United States of America. That is not a good sign as you're entering into the cooler weather. So what we really have to do is double down on the things that I talk about every single day, the five issues, universal wearing of masks, keeping a distance, avoiding crowds in congregate settings, trying to do things outdoors, preferentially over indoors and washing your hands frequently. They sound very simple, but people are not doing that. And that's the reason why we're seeing the uptick in cases. You've said we could have up to 400,000 deaths by the end of uh, the year because of a deadly fall and winter. How many lives could be saved if everyone wore masks? You know, I think a substantial proportion of that projection could have been whittled away at, Nora, if we use masks and did physical distancing and avoid congregate settings. It's very clear that when people do things in crowds without masks, particularly if you're indoors, it's just asking for trouble because we know without a doubt that those are the kind of events that have spreading among people. It isn't as if we haven't been there before. We know that's trouble. So it just seems so obvious we've got to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, I wonder if you could just say one more thing about the safety of vaccines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have I have really a strong confidence in the FDA's career scientist, as well as the commissioner who made it very public that he would not let any political considerations go into the decision of making a safe in a vaccine. We have multiple uh, safeguards of committees that are advisory committees that talk about that. If it goes through the process, which I am sure it will be, of what happens when you get to the point of a safe and effective vaccine declaration, I would feel comfortable in taking a vaccine and I would feel comfortable in advising you, my friend, to do that. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by Paul Whitty Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Gil Gross. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.